2014, our friend Pharrell, who whatever he touches turns to gold, came up with the song Happy. It was a runaway hit. What's funny is that it was actually a song made for the movie Despicable Me 2, which is an important qualifier, right? So not just regular Despicable Me, but Despicable Me 2. And the song just took off. You know, part of it was, you know, the imagery of the video is pretty catchy, right? Because there's all these people dancing and they're actually looking like what they were singing happy. Part of it is just it's a, like it's a catchy, non-offensive tune. Like, is there anybody that actually hates that song? And is that because you worked in a business place where it just happened over and over again? You're like, I am no longer happy because I listened to that song. Here's the thing about happiness, and important for this conversation where we're at today because we are in a church, and people believe that religion attempts to solve ultimately, among a myriad of other issues, ultimately the issue of our individual happiness. And that's one of the reasons why people usually seek out faith because they believe that somewhere here I'm going to find the key for me being able to live a happy life. And I'd offer in some extent that's true for almost nearly every major world religion. Now what's interesting within the transition of our world today, because in a few decades ago, you would not have been able to claim that you were an atheist or agnostic because it was actually controversial. Because for you to be just a pagan godless would have been something that, that would have showed that you had no moral compass. But now that atheism, agnosticism is on the rise, people are trying to say, how do we, we, we take an evolutionary structure, a godless society, and explain who we are, what we do, and especially how we feel? And that was the picture I teased with earlier from this man, Yuval Noah Harari, is a really solid author. He, he writes compelling books. This, his breakout book, Sapiens, was released a few years ago. He has another book recently. I haven't gotten to that one. But th- in reading this, what Harari tries to do is show a revisionist history which exists without a god, so therefore talks about our development as, you know, from our ape ancestors towards homo sapien world and how that explains the rest of history. And it's interesting, I just a few weeks ago finished wrapping up this book on flight and I was, I was reading and, and knew I was going to be talking about this topic eventually today and the second to last chapter of the book is all about happiness. If there's no god, then Harari's trying to postulate what does it mean for us to be happy? And what he does is he decries all the major world religions attempts at it, and then an offering an explanation of how in a godless world we ought to seek happiness, he writes the following. Today, when we realize that the keys to happiness are in the hands of our biochemical system, we can stop wasting our time on politics and social reforms and focus instead on the only thing that can make us truly happy, which is manipulating our biochemistry, which is romantic, isn't it? It's how I got Kelly to marry me. Now, what's interesting is that if his assertions are correct and we are truly without a God, uh, that we just happen to be on the right side of the gene pool and evolved from apes, this is actually a very astute opti- uh, uh, observation, and I think we should adopt it. Now, what's interesting is he has to go to the extreme in that same chapter and said, this doesn't mean, because he, uh, he, he uh, quotes Aldous Huxley's Brave New World within this, and he says, it doesn't mean then when we all just get our drugs and just have a good time and live from there. He's trying to find some meaning with and happiness. And friends, so we have to understand this is that our happiness is actually something that those who believe in no God struggle to define. Because if we are all, just, you know, if we were just the winners of the evolutionary race, 
then what does it mean for us to be happy? And really, it is no more than us mastering the biochemical reaction in our head that provides us pleasure. Now, for those of you here, you're either somebody who follows God or you're in the midst of this journey. So what we need to do is really grapple with a question that Christians even struggle with who believe in a God. What does it truly mean for you and I to be happy? We're starting a new series today. We're calling this series a, a, a Beautiful Mind because what we have here is a letter written 2,000 years ago to a church that no longer exists. This church in Philippi, which is, was northern Greece, it was not quite a port town, but it was near the Aegean Sea, and then it was also near a major route. So Philippi was a very influential place. There were many churches started all around the Mediterranean world, of which Philippi was one, and the author of this letter... In the New Testament of your Bible, the book of Philippians, was a man who was at this time in prison. He was a murderous individual, but he wasn't in prison because he was murderous. He was in prison because after he murdered people who believed a certain ideology, he adopted that ideology for himself. And the public officials saw that as a rebellion against the Roman structure of authority. So they put this man in prison, the Apostle Paul. And a lot of us know about Paul or at least have heard of him. He, he was not along with Jesus during the travels, but he was one of the most important early converts. And he has influenced a lot of what we as churches do today. So it's important to know Christianity, to understand Paul. And this letter to Philippians, what we're getting here, and I, I want to reference this because sometimes when you read Paul in the New Testament, you're like, this is just a pissed off legalist who's just really angry and wants to say be you know do what jesus says to do and like it but really what you have to do is read the entirety of paul's letters and this is the much nicer softer huggable paul that some of you have been longing for and not only is he just nicer here he's trying to get us to grapple with what does it really mean to think well about our faith and especially in chapter one to find happiness. So we're going to look at that in Philippians chapter 1 today. Alicia has been as kind as possible to read from us, and some of you who are linear thinkers are already struggling because we're going to start Philippians, and we're starting in verse 12 because you're like, we're already skipping like half the chapter. It, you may read this later on your own if you feel so inclined. It doesn't mean that it's unimportant, but for us to get through this at any time today, we're going to have to start somewhere. And to get to this point, I want to start in verse 12, okay? So it doesn't mean that the verse 1 through 11 is just fluff to be cut out, but we're trying to hone in on a topic today. So Alicia, if you will, read out loud for us verses 12 to 14 of Philippians chapter 1. My blue Bible has page 830 if you're searching for that. Go ahead, please. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Okay, so Paul is writing this from prison. What's very interesting is we don't know what kind of prison from which he writes these greetings. Which is an interesting thing to confront because the reason we don't know is he was in prison so many different times in multiple venues. We don't know which prison he is. At one point, Paul was in prison in the city of Rome and his imprisonment there was a house arrest. Okay, so he, he, he wasn't within a, a, a horrible jail at that time, which is, you know, if any of you have been in any aspect of the penal system, whether as a visitor or as a guest... 
so be it. But, you know, today jails aren't pleasant. Imagine 2,000 years ago, it was just a horrible, horrible place to be. We don't know if Paul was in a house arrest where he had, like, some freedom within a dwelling place or if he was in a prison in chains. We have no idea. So whether he had the ankle bracelet or he's doing Monty Python's Holy Grail clapping, anyone with that one? That, that's, that was for me more than you, but... Regardless of what imprisonment Paul finds himself in here, he is limited within his freedom to move. However, he's using this as an opportunity to say something powerful, which is important for you and I to understand the mentality of somebody who's in prison. One of the reasons, and by the way, beautiful thing, it's never been my calling, but this past week I was a bunch of ministers, and I've talked with three of them who are very involved within prison ministry. And I don't know if any of you have ever served people in prison or trying, you know, to go through that. Sometimes there's a mental objection that we have because we have this mentality of they're in prison, they're bad, they need to serve and they need to do their time and they need to pay their debt to society. And as a result, we kind of place a certain mentality on those who are in prison. And we're going to see right here, this is what Paul is actually struggling with within this text. Because he's in prison, and as a result, as being one of the most influential of Jesus' church, there are people who believe certain things about Paul, and he's going to try to overcome that. So in the midst of this embarrassing situation, right? He's a good rule follower. Actually, he's telling the church, these are the rules you need to follow, yet at the same time, he's in prison. What Paul is trying to do here at the beginning of the text is to say, look... I am in prison, but not because I've done something horribly wrong. The opposite. I've done something very good, which is to stand firm for what God has asked me to do. I have preached Jesus. I've told people to love him, and as a result, they've thrown me in prison. And what he does in verses 12 through 14 is he shows, by the way, if you really want to know why I'm in prison, talk to the people who are holding me here. Talk to the palace guard. Ask them, why is Paul in prison? Is it because he's done something wrong? No, it's because actually he has stood up for Jesus in the face of the governmental oppression of the time. In the face of the Roman Empire, Paul has stood firm. And therefore he has said, look, I am justified before Jesus. It's an important thing for us to grapple with. Because did Paul do what was right ultimately within his life? Yes. Did Paul, however, have negative results from doing what is right? He did. And if you're a kid working through this, or maybe if you're also an adult, I think that's sometimes the most difficult thing we have to do, isn't it? To come to grips, what is happening in my life and what is my responsibility toward that? Because so often we think, "If if I'm doing what's right, I ought to be happy, right? If I'm doing wrong, then I deserve to be sad or miserable, But what we have to see is it's just not that clean and easy within this context, people. It's not that easy just to think that, hey, if good things are happening to me, then the Lord is blessing me and I'm happy. Because sometimes what we do is we focus in so finite that we can't see the broader picture. Been reading a lot from a guy named Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman was a Jewish philosopher, or um, actually, he 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 wasn't an economist, but his psychological background so influential influenced uh, economics that he won a Nobel Prize in economics, which is funny because he did not have economics in his background at all. But what he was very good at is understanding behavior and how that impacts economics. 
In 2004, within the midst of one of his studies, he got a bunch of young mothers in Texas to do a study. He studied 900 young mothers. And he had them, for a period of time, log each of the individual tasks that they performed in the day taking care of their child. So he said, just, uh, you know, keep a notebook and tell me everything you do, right? So if I had to breastfeed, that was on the list. If I had to change a poo diaper, that was on the list, right? If I had to, you know, fix them food or formula or any, any other aspect of this, they had a log. And then he asked them to say, how does it make you feel? Was it fun or was it miserable? And this is what was interesting to a T within this study. Kahneman discovered that these mothers, as they recounted everything on the list, had a high, a unreasonably high reaction of negativity to the individual tasks that they've performed. And some of you moms, I can get an amen from that. Because as much as you're like, you know, I'm wiping feces from this young child, it's a miserable act, right? When you inevitably get a little poo underneath your fingernail and then you waft that the rest of the day, that, that would be negative task, right? But this is the fun thing about it. In the midst of this study of itemizing all the tasks, he asked them, what is your level of joy with being a parent? It was high off the charts. That almost every single of the mom said, this is the most enjoyable thing, the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. How does that make sense? It doesn't from a scientific perspective, does it? Because it's not causal. Because these negative tasks, all this horrible experience is supposed to make me feel bad, right? But isn't it interesting? Is that's the same way we view faith and how God works sometimes? So we have these events and we, we, you know, we highlight all the horrible things that might be happening in our lives. And we're just like, well, where is the Lord in this? I'm going to tell you, it's the same situation that we need to view within our lives. It's the understanding of this. Even though we might not feel happy in individual moments and vignettes, we can see the trajectory of what the Lord is doing in our life and find joy and peace and comfort and, and happiness. It's there for us if we don't hone in too much. I think that's why we need to focus on this keys to happiness. And I want to offer you one from this first text, which is positivity. I think Paul is incredibly positive in this text. And you know, just what I've been trying to do as of late because, you know, I don't know, I'm just trying to recalibrate my life, is I'm trying to notice more positivity where I go. I'm traveling a lot more, so I'm seeing a lot more people than I ever used to see. I'm not in that, like, traditional office role, so I'm traveling people, and I see people who are performing all sorts of, you know, C-suite, high-level people, and then I'm dealing with, you know, also people who are doing what we would consider menial tasks. And I always am anxious to see, how are they reacting to this job? Like, I, I, I love just trying to poke and talk with somebody and see what happens. So I go this past week, I'm, I'm, I'm out of town. I have to go to a Walgreens to pick up a couple things because I was traveling, I didn't have much. And I come in and this woman is just like, now she's at the makeup counter, which, you know, that, that Walgreens thing is awkward because I'm like, I don't really work it within that makeup counter place. But she was just like, how can I help you today? And I was like, well, I'm just looking for this and this. She goes, I'm going to show you. So she walks me and she's like, wait, and then grabs me a basket. She's like, you'll need this. And I was like, okay. You know, and she was just really enthusiastic. She's like, what do you need exactly? I said a couple of things. She goes, there's this and this. She goes like, I'm not going to stand here and watch it, but I just want you to know if you also need this, it's on the other side of the floor. Come, come, come back to me and I'll make sure to check you out quickly. And I was like, this very nice. So I come back with my thing. She's just like, you got every, you know, she's like really interested. She's just like, you have everything you need and stuff. And I was just like, I'm having a good experience at Walmart because this lady is just really into her job. 
So I made a remark about it. I was like, I'm just glad that you're so enthusiastic about this job. I know it's not the coolest job in the world, but you get it done. She's like, yeah, it's not what I want to be doing ultimately, but if I'm here, you know, I need to do it. So then inevitably, like you go to any store anymore, it's not just about buying what you need at the store. At the end of the experience, she's just like, oh, and by the way, this, we're, we're doing this thing this month. We're trying to raise money for, I have no idea what I was raising money. She's like, so, you know, if you give a dollar to this, and I was just like, boom, I was like, here's my dollar lady. And I was like, I hate this crap. I like you, and that's great. So the first thing is, is that when you give the dollar, I didn't know, they ring a bell. Like, it wasn't just like, ding, 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 ding. It was like a flipping cowbell. So, like, I gave her a dollar, and the next thing is like, boop, 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 and here's this dude at the makeup counter. <laughs> so I'm like, don't look at my bag. It was deodorant. It happens to the best of us. Um, and that's a positive thing. But, okay, so there's that attention. But then she goes, and you get this. And she hands this to me, and it's a clown nose. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? She's like, you wear it. (laughs) I was like, okay. So I was like, okay. So I just threw up my stuff. And it's tough to talk when you have this thing on. But but here's the funny thing. If I was thinking about this, it's like, number one, they gave me a clout nose. Like that's, at least I got something out of the deal, right? They didn't tell me to pull out a piece of paper, write my name, and they'll put it on the wall. So at least I got a clout nose. But here's the thing. Can you, you can't really take me seriously anymore, can you? But sometimes we need some clown noses in our life, right? Because there's so much ridiculous in this world, we forget to be positive. Friends, I'm telling you, this is something that Paul shows us right here. He's in the middle of prison. It's a miserable experience. And yet he's just saying, I know, I know Jesus is doing something in me. So I'm cool with it. That's positivity. I think we need to adopt that in our lives. Do me a favor, Alicia. Read verses 15 to 17, please. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supporting that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. That's good, right? Yes. Yes. I lost my place. Yes. Thank you. So this is the interesting thing. We don't know what this conflict is, but we can read between the lines, can't we? Basically, there's this idea that Paul's in jail and the people who are stirring up trouble for him being there are not like these pagans who are like, ha there you go, you're religious leaders in jail. What it sounds like, it's his other Christians, Christian potential leaders who are doing this. Now, I know this is tough for you, but understand that not all Christian leaders are good and do things right. Like, I know it takes a minute for us to comprehend that, because we operate under the assumption that every Christian leader is pure and worthy and noble in everything they do. It's not true. Because what happens is, is that people see faith sometimes for the opportunity that it can provide them. And friends, the one thing I've discovered is that whenever I was doing ministry work, I never got rich off the deal. But the one thing is that I always had a sphere of influence over people that was kind of ungodly. Because when you're a religious leader and you make a statement, people tend to listen more than when you're just a regular schlep and not, uh, you know, to offend the regular schleps in the crowd. But understand that that goes both ways too. The reason that you don't want to do that as a leader in James 3.1, it says, hey, if you deal with that poorly, then God's going to get you, sucker, right? Like that's the change to that. But because these religious leaders were like Paul's in jail, it's a chance for us. I'm telling you, I, I have seen over the course of my ministry and my years working in the church, so many theological arguments where people want to talk about the Bible where it has nothing to do about Jesus, has everything to do about power. People like the power that comes with being a religious leader. So again, 
here's Paul within this just saying, look, here's the motivation from which people are doing preaching. Because we have some people that are preaching because of envy and rivalry. They want to get Paul. They're glad that he's in prison. What is their motivation? It's selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. This is something that I think is true of the Bible that we need to understand. Because some of you are like, look, I'm a follower of Jesus. I can't be ambitious. I'm supposed to be like, turn the other cheek. You know, just let everybody roll over me. That's it. No, you can have ambition. But in that, you want to make sure that it's not being executed just because you want to be awesome. It can't be selfish. What Paul says is true preaching is preaching of goodwill with the motivation of love. And basically what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, there's these people who are trying to get me. They are preaching because of selfish ambition. I'm sitting here in prison and the reason I'm doing this is love. And he wants to lay out how this looks for the people who are of Philippi who know that Paul is, is in prison to make sure that they understand. It's like, look, is this optimal for me? No, but I'm okay even though these people are doing things for the wrong pur- purpose. Why is this? I think it's another key to happiness. And you're going to see my preacher leaning, infiltrating this because I have the second P of alliteration. You like that? Yeah. Posture. I think posture is very important. Posture is, is how we set ourselves up. So if you're in the midst and you're wondering, okay, how can I be more happy? Maybe the most important thing you need to do is to tell yourself, I ought to be happy and I need to display that. I do say the phrase over and, all, over, and over to people. And I believe it's a mantra that is maybe not fully biblical, but true. But fake it till you make it, Right? Like, you, you know, you, you don't know exactly how you're going to be happy. But sometimes, if you take the mentality that I'm going to be happy, dang it, I'm going to live this out, it can work well with you. And if your unhappiness is being like Paul lobbed to you by people who should know better, right? Because the worst conflicts are things with other Christians. It's like, you should know better. What does Paul do here? He still takes a cool posture. He's like, it's all good. If they're going to preach Jesus for those wrong meanings. We'll get to this in the next verse. But understand Paul's posture. He is just, he's cool as a cucumber. He's like, it'll be okay. There's this verse, it doesn't necessarily fit. But I think it is a good verse because when it speaks to posture, it's something that my mom used to tell me. It was the worst thing. It's from the Bible. Which, you know, again, those things, something my mom said, and from the Bible can be the worst thing. It can be because it's not like how you should live. This isn't the summation of Christian living from the scriptures. Right? If your enemy's hungry, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. That's good stuff, right? That's like Jesus quality stuff. I love the tag at the end of this, though. In doing so, you heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. So it's like they'll get screwed over and you'll be cool. It's great. Love other people. It's not like the most succinct view of this, but understand this is sometimes your happiness is going to be impacted by other people pushing onto you their baggage, right? If you're able to adopt a posture, a posture of happiness, it can help you through this. And understand, God sees that, blesses, and honors that. Okay, let's keep reading, if we will, Alicia. The next verses, verses 18 and 19, please. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through our prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. 
Okay, so Paul isn't saying, I'm totally happy in what these people are doing. You should be just like them and preach Jesus through selfish ambition. That's not what he's saying, okay? He's like, I'm rejoicing in this, but I don't want you to be like these people. Like, don't think the key to happiness is selfish ambition. Don't be confused about that. But remember that I'm a positive guy with a good posture. I see the lay of the land right here better than the majority of them. And then what we have there then at the beginning of verse 18, I think is one of the coolest memory verses in the Bible that I never, ever looked at. And I'm telling you, like, I seriously, and it'd be interesting, this would be a parlor game. I had the entire book of Philippians memorized at one point. I thought it was such a cool book. Like next week, chapter two, what David is, you got to be here next week because chapter two is one of my most favorite texts in all of the Bible. And sometimes you miss the forest for the trees, right? I had no idea that the beginning of verse 18 had one of the coolest memory verses ever. And I don't necessarily always impose that on other people, but I'm telling you, this is a good memory verse for this week. And it's very succinct. It's not biblical. Paul's like, but what does it matter? But what does it matter? I want you to think about that really quickly because of all these powerful memory verses that you commit to memory. Is that not one that could help you maybe navigate through your life and employ Christian happiness to you? But what does it matter? See, that's my problem in life. And I'm sure it's the majority of the problem with a lot of us here too because I get so worked up over things in the moment that I want to have it out right now. I am correct. I am justified before Jesus. You need to know that. I'm smarter than you, right? Like, I, uh, through all this stuff, I will execute this. I get so excited. And the thing I've been trying to push myself personally is just like, what is this going to mean six months from now? Is me having it out on this issue going to change the trajectory of my life or eternity for somebody else? And again, it's tough to do this, right? It's tough for us to always think bigger than the moment. But I've just tried to think a lot recently, just, but what does it matter? But what does it matter? This is what's great within the life of Paul. Paul is in the point where he's in prison. These people are talking smack against them. They're saying he claims to be a major leader, but he's in jail right now. So what did he do? Paul is on all sides. He is confined because he's in prison. He can't fully defend himself. And he drops this verse on him. What does it matter? You know what's interesting? 2,000 years later, tell me what did it matter? Like, we don't even know what they were arguing about. We don't even know what they were lobbying against Paul. I think Paul did okay for himself in the long run, right? 2,000 years later, we are still examining in minutia things that this man wrote from prison, right? What did it matter? It didn't matter anything. Why can't you and I adopt that in our lives? You know what I think that then calls for us to do? It calls for us to have a perspective, a perspective that is beyond usually where we're at in the moment. I'm going to tell you, friends, you need perspective. If you are allowing the actions of others to impact your happiness, then you're doing it wrong, right? You need to have a broader perspective. Can I take a second and go the inverse of that? Because I think this is important too. Because everybody's like, yes, I'm not going to let a negative person affect my happiness because, you know, Tony Robbins, right? Like, I'm going to own this. And by the way, last week, Kelly and I had a conversation on Tony Robbins. And she's like, people don't remember who he is. You, I remember who he is. Watch his Netflix documentary. That'll freak you out. So, booyah. 
but what does it matter? I'm sorry. Okay. Here's the thing. When somebody, you know, when you talk about within references of, you know, like, if somebody's being mean or angry or wrong to me, I don't want to let that affect my happiness. That makes sense, right? Let me go the inverse of this, however, which is, if somebody who is experiencing something that they probably deserve and they finally get it, and I'm happy because they got it, you should neither let that impact you and your happiness. Does that make sense? Like there's this, you know, this Grinch-like smile when, you know, and it didn't really have to do with the Grinch. But I just picture that smile when like somebody finally gets what's coming to them because you're like, that makes me happy. Because it's just like there's justice in this world and God reigns supreme. And we need to understand is that he, there is justice in the world. God does reign supreme, but it doesn't matter if somebody's experiencing things. Can I call us out on that now for this moment? Can I take a vignette from this past week? I don't know if you've kept up with the social medias and things that have happened around the world. But there was a certain festival down in the uh, Caribbean this past week called the Fire Festival, organized by our friend Ja Rule. Ja Rule! That was the horrible Ja Rule impersonation. Forget it. I have a few more, but it's just going to denigrate. So they organized this thing. It's It's like a special festival just for really affluent people like you have to pay thousands of dollars to get there and they promised all-inclusive everything the best food you can imagine amazing villas and houses where they could hang out and all you have to do is pay like you know tens of thousands of dollars you hop on this plane and you're going to get all these special concerts and stuff but apparently the promoters had none of it there so they got all these people down here and they just happened just happened to be like these you know rich hipster yuppie type uh, white folk and this is what they ended up with Okay, like, those are seriously, like, disaster tents, like, for refugees. They're like, you'll enjoy your villa. No, like, they, 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 you can go on Amazon and find it. It's called, you know, a disaster tent, which is ironic. And then, you know, the field, they, the, the, the wonderful food they handed them, like, was, like, these, you know, styrofoam boxes with, like, some lettuce and tomato and two pieces of cheese and some bread. Like, it's just great. And like some of you, I was just like cracking my rear end off on that this week, right? Like it was like the, it was the toast of the tweets this week. Like there was some great stuff happening. Now, I want you to stop for a minute and let's, let's psychoanalyze this for us. Okay, and by the way, this isn't like, we're not going to have the confession booth over here. You're like, you're going to your Twitter account, your Facebook. You're like, I'm deleting that now. It's not about this, but let's just look at the broader picture. Why is this, why is it okay for us to mock them? It's okay for us to mock them because, you know, they're predominantly white, they're privileged, They had everything going for them. They were stupid. They got snookered. So let's all rejoice, right? Like, it is. Do you realize, though, it's us actually taking a posture of belittling them to fuel my own happiness? Is that not true? Like, for a minute, I just had this just like... (laughs) And right now, in my worst of moments, I'm still laughing about this because it is hilarious on that level. But if it was of a minority group who were impoverished, I'm doing that, you would be like, you're a horrible person, right? We need to imprison you. Because that is like the seed of racism, right? The seeds of prejudice is me demeaning someplace, somebody else to feel better about my position in society. So I know you're like, seriously, there are seeds of prejudice within us mocking these people. And one of the reasons I've tried to stop doing that on the social media myself on a personal level is because then when I'm out in the world, I, you know, people, especially within your church work, everybody looks at everything you've ever done online, what you've written, preached, tweeted, 
posted anything they look at. And inevitably, I run across people who, you know, I bet if I looked through my thing, I probably could have known at least one person either attended or was a very close friend of somebody I know attended this thing, right? Because you never know who they are. So I try to minimize that in my own life. And it's a struggle, right? But the overarching thing is I need to have a healthy perspective in Christ. And that perspective means that if my happiness is defined by either somebody, you know, if it's negatively affected by somebody impacting me, or if it's positively affected because of the way that I'm demeaning somebody else, that I'm doing it wrong and I lack the perspective I need to really do what Paul is asking to do here. And this is a point where I'm saying Paul gets it so right, and he's a great example of this. Let's see where he actually takes this one step further. Alicia, a little longer, but we'll get there. Verses 21 to 26. For to me, to live in Christ and to die is gain. If I am going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is, far, which is better by far. But, is, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Okay, so when, when Paul gets to this moment and he's trying to say, look, this is how I live life. Sometimes, again, we miss this because it just makes Paul sound morbid again, right? Like, a lot of people criticize Christianity because they think it's just hope in death and life after death. Like, that's what it's about. You know, it's just like, hey, this is like death insurance, life insurance. Like, you know, we side up with the right guy so that eternity we're with Jesus and it's all good. Like, that's why some people say we believe. And that's not true at all what Paul is trying to talk with right here. Paul is in the midst of a a horrible situation. This is why many scholars suppose that he's not actually in Rome when he writes this in house arrest. He might be in Caesarea or even Ephesus where he was imprisoned in a real jail because he had to wonder, can I physically survive this? Like when you're in those conditions and disease ravages through there, he probably saw other prisoners come in healthy and leave dead just by being in prison. So he's having to really think, what does it mean for me to live or die in this, con- in this context? And what he lands on is this. You know, right now, if I was dead, you know, if I were to die, I had a good life. I did Jesus' work. He would be fine with me. I'm confident that my soul before Jesus is good. You know, that's Paul's perspective. But he also is saying right here, however, if Jesus is going to ask me to live long, then all I'm going to do is embrace that and live every day for him. I'm not going to give up. And even though my, my joy right here is tampered, I'm going to find joy in who Jesus is what he's done for me transformatively because that's what it means to live for him. And that's why I really believe where we land on this in describing Paul is that he is absolutely persistent. He will not give up on what Jesus has called him to do because that's what he's called to be. And similarly, friends, one of the things that happens with us so often with our happiness is that we deal with so much of the mire and muck of life. When it comes to us, the onslaught, we struggle with this and and we either self-medicate or we find just some sort of way, you know, just to ignore it altogether. And again, part of this just means life is difficult. Thank God we're not in a, you know, an ancient Roman prison. It would be even worse but as we traverse this, this week, we, we just have to try just to persevere and not give up. 
And that's what Paul is saying. He's like, at this point, I've lived a full life. If you ever go back and read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I want to see, is the long list of everything that Paul went through in life. He went through some horrible, horrible experiences. And he's still saying, if I have to do more for this, I'm going to do it. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to own it. That's what Paul is telling us to do. Just own it. Own all of this. Now, here's where we come down to this. And, and by the way, there's some preaching license that you take when you look at, you know, kind of developing things because you're like, I didn't find any of those words in the text. I'm trying to summarize and then give you an alliterative to take that home with you, right? Insta this crap. This is awesome. It, it's difficult to do. You can come up later and look at it. But here's the thing, okay? When we deal with lists about this, this is seriously not something outside the grade of self-help, Right? I brought up Tony Robbins before. There's this, there's this idea within business and, psychological, and psychology development to where, yes, the attitude that you bring to the table has definitive impact on your ability to complete and execute even the basic tasks. Like, this is a good, solid list. Like, I'm going to write this down. And every day, I'm going to you know, have it on my mirror on a card or, 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 or on the dashboard of my automobile, right? Like, I'm going to continue to look over this list, and this is what I need to do. But here's the thing. This type of thing is done by people all over the world, whether or not they believe in Jesus or not. These are keys that other people are employing to try to find happiness. And this is what's interesting about what Paul is trying to do through this. As he continues, and he'll continue later in the book to talk about happiness and joy. Even though these are things that he exhibits, this isn't how he managed to live a life of happiness. You know how he did it? We have to go through to the next verse. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. Whatever happens, whatever happens, mountaintop experience in the lowest valley of the shadow of death, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, that sounds a little bit churchy for some of us, right? So we have to unpack that. What is that manner, that attitude worthy of the gospel? What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news about Jesus. Who is Jesus? God, creator of the universe, come to earth, live life with you and me, live life as, as a human, submit himself, and we'll, Paul talks about this next week, submitting himself to death at the hands of his creation, just so that his creation who killed him could have the chance to live with him for eternity. That is like the ultimate story, narrative of selflessness, of sacrifice, And you know what, when I think about that, the man are worthy of the good news? Jesus had different attitudes with which he approached life. Whenever I imagine Jesus, I think of him happy. Like Jesus did have his times. Like he's flipping over money changers' tables. He was angry. When his closest friends died, Jesus wept. We know that Jesus reached points of exhaustion, maybe even what could be described as depression. But overall, when I think of Jesus, I think of, man, I imagine happy Jesus. And I don't know if that's just the confines of what I put in my, I, I, maybe I could have just then taken the next hour to do just a whole study on Jesus and happiness. Maybe that's what we need to do is just find out where Jesus was. I just believe 
that he was joyful and that people that were around him, we know that the scripture said, I'm sorry, I'm dovetailing this, but I think it's important. Jesus wasn't like this amazingly good-looking, handsome person. The Bible tells us that in the Old Testament in the prophecy of Isaiah. So it wasn't just like, I want to hang around that cool dude, okay? So if somebody doesn't have this magnetic, like, you know, vibe or essence, like, you know, how, why are you happening? I'm, why would you hang around him? I'm going to assume it's just because it was a joy to be in the very presence of Jesus. He was happy. And friends, that's what Paul is trying to say. That's what defined his happiness. If I can just try to act like I am worthy of what Jesus is doing, then I will find true happiness. And therefore, if I'm living life in a gospel-worthy manner, these might be the qualities and traits that I am exhibiting, but it is all derived from this idea that Jesus makes me whole. So that's the question I think you need to ask yourself as a follower of Jesus this morning. Does Jesus make you whole? Does Jesus make you happy? I've talked a lot. I'm going to pause right here. And as we close, I just want you to just look at just this on the screen. My happiness is. I want you to think internally right now in your life. I want you to, you don't have to utter this aloud, but say this word to yourself. Complete this sentence. My happiness is. How are you completing that? Maybe you're at a point right here this morning where you're like, my happiness is elusive. I can't grab it, touch it. It's just not there for me. Our community of faith would say that that's something that is accessible to us through Christ Jesus. We're not saying that Jesus is going to make your life complete happy because things are still going to happen, but however we think it's rooted in him. If you say my happiness is off the charts, then good for you today. You know, take an extra cup of coffee out the door. It'll, it'll just increase that. But what we would ask is, if your happiness is just, you know, unparalleled, why are you happy? Is that because, you know, last night you hung out with a bunch of people and you drank till you, you know, you're like, you had to Uber home and you were hoping you made it home Okay. Right? Is your happiness centered in something that the world is providing or in your, in your life that says, Jesus is sufficient for me and I'm going to live that way? Let's do that this week, all of us. As we think about how we are pursuing happiness in our lives. Friends, I'm just, just to come through this, if, if, if there is no God, if all this stuff is bunk, then it's all about biochemistry. If it's truly about something bigger than you, if it's truly about what Jesus did, try owning that and see how that impacts everything. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the words of your servant Paul today. Father, as he was going through a horrible place, as he was imprisoned, he projects here some of the most beautiful things he's ever written. I'm just... I'm just awed by that because when we're usually in bad situations, when I'm in a tough place, it's not the time where I can be encouraging and edifying to other people and yet we have that here. And Father, I don't claim that because Paul was the most brilliant person who ever lived. I think it was just because he so embraced your son Jesus that it poured out of him. And that's what I pray for us this week. Father, we're all gonna have opportunities this week to let our happiness be affected by something outside of us, whether it's somebody negative coming to our lives, whether it's us wanting to redefine ourselves by somebody else. Just help us to help us to stop. 
Help us to think about your son, Jesus. Help us to live lives worthy of the calling that we have received. Thank you for your immense love and the grace you bring to us in Christ's name. Amen.